0: Of guts to do that a cappella, huh? You pulled it off well. <laughs> I was afraid someone was going to say that. Well, it is kickoff Sunday, and it's it's great to see you all here. Kickoff Sunday kind of starts the fall, and it's kind of the beginning of a new year. And you know, I think this is going to be. Pretty exciting year, actually. Keep watching for the next several months. I think it'll get more and more exciting, more exciting than most of us want it to get. I think you're going to see some pretty dramatic changes here in very short order. So uh, the best thing we can do is get prepared, right? Prepared spiritually for what's going to be happening And you'll notice in the back, there are some tables, though, especially just to highlight some of the ministries. We're certainly very big on small group. If you are not in small community, I'll tell you, that's where really New Testament Christianity is practiced. So I want to challenge you, if you're not in a small group, visit the small group table in back. There's women's ministries and women's ministry small groups. There's Awana. Awana is a fabulous program. And uh, I don't know, how many people just right now have kids involved in Awana? We started off, uh, I think, last week, and I'll tell you, that is a fabulous program for the children and discipleship, so uh, I want to invite you out to that on Tuesday night, and I believe it starts either at 5.45, 6 o'clock, and there's an Awana table back there, so just check out some of the tables that we have. All right, that great theologian, George Burns, Skip, can you put up his picture? Some of you probably don't know George, but he, he was a great theologian, believe it or not. Actually, just kidding, but he actually once said this. He said, the secret of a great sermon is to have a good beginning, to have a good ending, and have the two as close together as possible. I think George knew something about sermons, right? Many of you can probably say amen to that. (laughs) didn't actually expect you to say amen to that, but you can see it's going to be a long morning. All right. This morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians, and I have entitled the message this morning, Introductions Matter. Introductions Matter, and it'll actually be part one. Lord, I just thank you for what's transpired up to this morning. I thank you for each person here. I believe that you brought them here. And Lord, I I think what we're going to talk about this morning is just so critical to us in the American church in this hour. So I just invite you, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Because only you can really open our eyes. Only you can really open our ears. And so you are welcome here, Holy Spirit, that you would just manifest yourself. Just manifest yourself in a powerful way. Oh, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive. I believe we can really walk out of here differently than we walked in this morning. And I just pray, I just cry out that there's gonna be freedom in the house this morning, that there'll be true freedom in the house this morning. I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head and that the words I speak would truly be words from you. So just have your way now, just have your way. And I ask for this in your precious name, amen. Last week, we saw that the church is the greatest organization on planet Earth. And the reason why the church is the greatest organization on planet Earth is because it is the only organization that can deal with Satan. There is no other organization, no other company on planet Earth that can deal with Satan and the powers of darkness. We have authority over Satan and the powers of darkness. We also saw last week that the reason why the church is the greatest company, the greatest organization on planet Earth, because at the very heart of the church is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And only Jesus Christ, only his church who carries his message and his authority can set people free. We also saw last week that the reason why the church is the greatest organization on planet Earth is because we're the only ones that can give people true meaning and true purpose to their lives. We also saw that the church is the only organization on planet Earth that can really give people hope. There is no hope in this world. This world can offer nothing beyond this world. We have genuine hope. And so if you missed last week's message, I really want to encourage you to get that message. You can either get it at the CD desk in the back, or you can just go to our website, and you can go to sermons, and you will see it hopefully posted. All right. This morning, like I said, we're gonna start our study In the New Testament book of Ephesians, we're going to look at the introduction, or at least start to look at the introduction, and introductions do matter, but I just want to give us a little background first on the book of Ephesians. Interestingly enough, the word Ephesians shouldn't even be there. You'll see it in the title. It says that it was written to the Ephesian church. More than likely, a monk added that in about the 400 or 500 AD, and you say, why would he do that? Well, it gave... The church at Ephesus some prestige, but it's actually not in the earlier manuscripts. The book of Ephesians is probably, or the letter, is probably what we call an encyclical letter, a circular letter. Skip, can you put that picture up? And there you see that more than likely that the letter we call Ephesians was circulated to the churches in Asia Minor, and you might recognize those churches. Those are the seven churches of Revelation. So that gives you the background to that. I also want to remind you that, yes, it's true, and we'll look at this in a moment, about the Apostle Paul, but I want you to understand something. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to Ephesians, he was not in a Roman resort sitting poolside sucking on mint tulips. Now, you might say, why does this matter? Well, it matters because actually the Apostle Paul was languishing in a Roman prison. And you say, well, why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important because we need to understand something here in America that Christianity was born in persecution. Christianity was born in tribulation. In fact, I'm going to make this radical statement here, that Christianity was meant to exist in persecution and tribulation. In fact, the New Testament letters cannot be understood. They do not make sense unless you understand that they pertain to a people who by and large would be rejected by this world. So now you come to America. We live in America. We're in the land of the free and also the land of the spiritually flabby. And you say, why would I say that? I'll tell you why I say that. Because one of the great concerns that I have is that I have read this book over and over, especially the New Testament. And what just really bothers me is if you just read the New Testament on its own, you begin to, and then you look at what you see here in America, and you go, holy Toledo, what you see by and large is not reflective of New Testament Christianity. We have created a Christianity that has a thin veneer of New Testament on it, and it is absolutely terrifying to me. And the result is, is that we have wrapped carnality in grace. We have spiritualized greed, and we call it great faith. And in doing that, we justify our accruing of money and wealth. We have idolized worldly success. And we call it being blessed. And yet we have shunned. We have shunned suffering and discomfort for the cause of Christ in the process. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to his disciple Timothy. 2 Timothy, It's Paul's final letter, he's about to die. And this is what he writes to Paul. Can you put that up? Skip in chapter 3, and he writes it starting at verse 10. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. By the way, do you know what your purpose in life is? We went over that last week, and it just blows my mind how few people really know when you ask him. I did it again. We were at the Jesus Soda Survey And we were out in beautiful Latham asking people, do you know what your purpose is? They're clueless. I love it. Paul at the end of his life could say, I know what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, Timothy. You know my patience and my love and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me. I love that, but the Lord is faithful. But the Lord rescued me from it all. And yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. It says, will suffer persecution, but evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others, and they themselves will be deceived. You know, what Paul is saying here, his main point is is that our hope, I want you to understand something. If you're a born-again Christian and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your hope just simply can't be here. And it's going to set you free if you really understand that my hope isn't here. It just flat out isn't here. And I'll tell you, my hope is in Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom, that you'll have no end. It is the eternal kingdom. And let me tell you something. Once your hope, once you have your hope there, you are set free. You are set free to sacrifice yourself for the best interests of people, because it doesn't matter what happens to me, and it doesn't matter what happens to you. What matters is that I know Jesus, and that I live for Jesus, and that I impact people for Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. And you can only do that when your hope isn't here, but your hope is in the kingdom to come. All right, now that we have the background to the letter of Ephesians, let's look at the introduction, verses one and two. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the holy people in Ephesus shouldn't be there, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see at first, right off, Paul is the human author to the letter of Ephesians. But he's not the real author. Do you know who the real author is? The Holy Spirit. See, Paul is just the ghost writer. Paul is just the ghost writer. But what do we know about Paul? Well, we actually know plenty. We probably know about him more than anybody else. And he writes this about himself in Philippians in chapter 3. Skip, can you put that up? He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was one of the members of the Pharisees, demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. The Apostle Paul is telling us here that he was a Jew extraordinaire. But Paul had to live with something that most of us never had to deal with and have never had to deal with when we think of sin. Paul lived with something he would never live down. He was a murderer. He was a cold-blooded Murder, he was responsible for killing one of the first deacons in the Christian church, Stephen. Skip, can you put that picture up? He encouraged his stoning. He held the coats of those people who were stoning Stephen. Most of us are familiar with ISIS. And I just want to give you this comparison. I want you to think about this. Skip, put that picture up. Now, that's a disturbing picture. That's a real picture of ISIS. And most of us think they are a brutal and barbaric people. And they are. But do you realize that the Apostle Paul had hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians rounded up? He had them incarcerated. Many of them were stoned, and some were even crucified. What Paul did to the Christians is exactly what ISIS is now doing to the Christians. That's how brutal Paul was. And you know what just blows my mind? What actually just amazes me is God loved Paul. No, no, and God loves ISIS. I know that's going to be hard for some people to accept, but that's why I want to put this up. God loved Paul. In fact, he loved him so much, he pursued him. On the road to Damascus, he saved Paul. And not only that, he made... Paul into a new creation, so much so that Paul went from being Saul of Tarsus, he changed his name to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a poster child for the power of Jesus Christ to change a person, and what he did for Paul, and this is why I'm bringing it up, he can do for you, and he can do for me this morning. I want to challenge you with that truth. You can change, and I can change, and change is possible. You know, one of the most disturbing things to me about the church here in America is we no longer believe in miracles. And I'm not talking about the miracles you're thinking about. I am talking about the miracle of a changed life, of a changed person, of a changed heart. And it is so sad that we almost no longer believe it, we no longer expect it, and we no longer demand it of ourselves You know, we are virtually the same as the world now. How do we change behaviors? Well, we change behaviors, I'll tell you, by, you know, simply giving them some pop psychology and giving them some pills and then putting them in a recovery group. You know, I know some people that have been in a recovery group for 20 years and they still haven't recovered. And that's just Tragic. And what are we saying, when you look at us in the American church, what are we saying about the power of Jesus Christ to deliver a person and change the person? Uh, Have you ever thought, how in the world did the early church do it? They didn't have pop psychology, they didn't have pills, they didn't have recovery groups. Yet, I want you to understand something, they were so much more healthy emotionally and spiritually than we are, and you say, well, how do you know that? I'll tell you how I know that, because they impacted the Roman world in 300 years, The Roman world was so impressed with the quality of the Christian that they saw, the change in their life, the courage that they saw, that they wanted in. They saw great miracles occurring in the changed lives of people. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ is still in the changing business. In fact, I got a word from God for you this morning. I got a word from God for me. He first gave it to me. He said, Frank... Jesus Christ is bigger and he is greater than your pain. Jesus Christ is bigger and he is greater than your past. Jesus Christ is bigger, and he is greater than any present problem that you are struggling with right now. And God wants you to know this morning, he can heal you, he can change you, and he can make you victorious. He did it for the Apostle Paul, and he can do it for you, and he can do it for me, and he can do it for this church. You know, it's amazing what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 and verse 1. Listen to what he said to the Corinthian Christians. He said this, and you, that is the believer, should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Now watch this, the deceived, the arrogant, the narcissistic, the angry murderer Saul of Tarsus could actually say that Jesus Christ had so dramatically and totally changed him that when you saw him, you saw Jesus Christ. Now, no, no, that's miraculous. That's miraculous, and that's possible. For every single person sitting in this seat this morning, I want you to be convinced that Jesus Christ can change a person. He can change you, and you don't have to be helpless about it. So the rest of this morning, I want to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. Why, why are we not changing? Why are we simply not changing? In fact, I think this is the number one reason why people out there, people out there, are not impressed with Jesus and his church and much of what i'm going to share with you from this point on comes from a pastor i appreciate in chicago some people say well how do you get fed well there's people like francis chan there's this pastor in chicago called james mcdonald i listen to him and he speaks to my soul and so i want to give you know credit where credit is due and much of what i'm going to say he has spoken a lot more about but it's near and dear to my heart, and this is the message of the hour now. So give me your, your final attention in the last 10, 12 minutes. It's important. You know, so many of us here this morning, so many people in the church are struggling with strongholds and addictions and habitual sin. And we just think there's really no hope. I mean, we we, we confess it, you know, we, we sin, and then we confess it, and we say, oh, Lord, I'm not going to do it again. And then we beg for forgiveness. And what do we do the very next day? We commit the same exact sin, and then we confess it. We say, Lord, I I promise, I promise, I won't. Please forgive me. And we sin and confess, and we sin and confess, and we sin and confess, and we find ourselves in a vicious cycle. And we find that there's no victory for us. We find that there's no change in our lives. We're not changing. And we're in kind of this hellhole, and we're in bondage, and we went out. Well, do you know what the answer is? The answer lies in one word. It's an old-fashioned word. you know what it is? Repentance. Repentance. And I want to say this as clearly and as firmly as I can say. There is not going to be any healing in your life. There's not going to be any change in your life. There's not going to be any victory in your life without repentance. That is the biblical answer to healing and change. You know, if we lived in the Old Testament times when we went to church, really, temple, and, you know, there was a marquee, there was a sign outside the church, it might read something like this. The prophet Ezekiel speaking this morning, and the title of his message would be, anybody want to guess? Repent, that's right, repent. Then you might go over to the next town, and it might be the prophet Jeremiah, he's speaking. And you know what the title of his message would be? You're getting it now. It would be repent. In fact, if if you, you you just read the Old Testament, at the very heart of the message of the Old Testament is repent, repent, repent. In fact, the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel wrote this in Ezekiel in chapter 18. He said this. Therefore, I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions, says the sovereign Lord. Repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want, this is God speaking, I don't want you to die says the sovereign God. So turn back, repent, he says, so that you can live. You know what the greatest need of the hour here in the American churches, and even right here is? Do you know what the greatest need? I'll tell you what the greatest need. It is fear, the fear of God. It is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning. And when we talked about fear several weeks ago, it wasn't just respect. It was the trembling kind of fear. So much fear that I would be obedient to God and I would live. And the second great need of the hour is this, a recognition, a revelation of our sin, of our own personal sin and selfishness and the pain that it causes and repentance from it. I want you to know this morning that sin will tear apart your marriage. Sin will tear apart your children. Sin's gonna tear apart your finances Sin is going to tear apart your church. And in many ways, you see the church being torn apart because of sin. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, there's that Frank again. He's just being harsh. You know, this is kind of a harsh message. And Frank, don't you realize that repentance is an Old Testament thing? What about the New Testament? What about Jesus? What about love? And you know what my response is to that? You need to read a little more of the New Testament. Jesus had 12 disciples and he trained those disciples. And after he got done training them, he sent them out to preach. And you know what their first message was? You know what it was? It was Mark chapter 6, verse 12. Here it is. So the disciples went out, they were pumped, telling everyone that they need to repent of their sins. The Apostle Peter. First message, Acts chapter 2. You know what was at the heart of Peter's message? Repent, Acts 2.38. Then we see his second message in Acts chapter 3. Now, you would think that, you know, Peter might think there should be a little more variety. A little change. Apparently not, because you see in Acts chapter 3, Peter cries out starting at verse 19. Now watch this. Now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Now, watch this. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. You know, my guess is there are people here this morning who are just dry on the inside. No, no, you just feel dry. You feel lukewarm. I mean, there's just a lukewarmness in your walk. You you no longer have that jump in your step. You're you're no longer excited about spiritual things. You're no longer excited and desperately and head over heels in love with Jesus. You go, what happened to the time of refreshment? To my soul. Do you know what the answer is? I hope you know what the answer is. The answer is, repent. The answer is really, it's repent. It's repent. Repent. You see, there is no healing, there is no change without repentance. So what is repentance? You know, I looked up the Greek word, and most of you know it, or many of you know it, it's metanoia. Do you know what it means? It means literally to rethink or to change your mind about something. So when we talk about having change in our life, it must first start in here. It must start with the way we think. Repentance is not a change of scenery. Repentance is not a new church. Repentance is not a new job. Repentance is not a new marriage partner. Repentance is a change that occurs on the inside of me because it's fueled by a change in the way that I think about things. And I begin to think as God begins to think. And when I repent, i listen to this. When I repent, when Frank Ray really repents, this is awesome. When I repent, all of a sudden I allow the Holy Spirit who's in me to just be unleashed. And where there was bitterness in me, and anger, and frustration, and envy, and jealousy, and lust, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's now released when I repent. And He begins to release in me love, and joy, and peace, and patience. And kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Everything now. I mean, instantly, it's so amazing how I can change. How I can change when the Holy Spirit's released to me. It's going to be amazing. Your partner, if you're married, is going to think that you're a new marriage partner when you repent and allow the Holy Spirit to just fill you and change you. All right, let me challenge this now. And the challenge is this. How can I know if I've really repented? I mean, that's a critical question. That's an important question. How can you really know? So we don't kid ourselves. How can you really know if you've repented? The Apostle Paul speaking to King Agrippa said this in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. He said this. Repent. Now, he's saying this to King Agrippa. Can you imagine saying this to a king? You can put air between the head and your shoulders. And he says this. Repent, King Agrippa, and turn to God. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. What are deeds appropriate to repentance? Biblically speaking, there's at least four things involved in those deeds. Four deeds, all right? Let me just give them to you really quick. Number one, if I truly repent and you truly repent, there's going to be an absence of rationalization. You know, when a person really repents, you're not going to hear things like, well, you just don't understand how much pain I'm in. Or, you don't understand my personality type. Or, you don't understand what jerks my parents were and and what I went through in my childhood. Nor are you going to hear, yes, I was wrong, but. You see, when a person genuinely repents, there's no excuses and there's no buts. No excuses and no buts. Secondly, when a person genuinely repents there's going to be genuine sorrow. I don't know about you, but when I have really repented, I become broken. When you really repent, there is a genuine, I'm not saying you have to have tears, but there really is a brokenness that occurs within you. It's interesting, after King David sinned, and now there's a person that knows how to sin. I mean, this guy does it well. He not only commits adultery, he ostensibly kills a man. And when he is confronted with what he did, watch how he responds in Psalm 51, 17. Watch this now. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You, God, will not reject a broken, repentant heart. Oh, God. Oh, do you want to tickle God's heart? You know what God can't resist? It's someone who is just genuinely broken over their sin. He can't, he can't help himself. He cannot help himself when someone genuinely repents with a broken heart. Thirdly, if there's really true repentance, there's going to be an open confession of sin. Now, this is really trips a lot of people up. You know, it's interesting. When King David sinned, do you know what initially he did? He did what all politicians do. What do politicians do? They cover it up. No, he did. He tried to cover it up. Now, what do you know about God? What do you think God thinks of cover-ups? See, God doesn't like cover-ups. And by the way, he always exposes darkness. So you're going to see some interesting things occurring here in the next several weeks here. He does not like darkness. He always exposes the darkness with his light. And he, like I said, you know, he, do you know what he made David do ultimately? David not only had to repent to the prophet Nathan, but he had to repent to the entire nation. How would you like to stand in front of the entire nation and just confess your sin and say, oh, I want you to know, oh nation, that I committed adultery and that I killed the husband on top. Can you imagine having to do that? But not only that, David's repentance has gone down from century to century. For 3,000 for 3, millennia, we're reading about the poor guy's repentance. And I want you to know when you truly repent, there's going to be a desire for open confession. You're going to confess. You know why you're going to confess it? Because nothing brings God greater glory than when someone repents of their sin, confesses it openly, and then talks about and testifies to the incredible grace of God. The incredible powerful grace of God that they just feel that releasing and that cleansing it's so powerful do you know what would begin to change the church in America because it hasn't happened for a long long time there hasn't been a revival for a long long time could you imagine if one after another came up to them and it's happened by the way before and people just said I just want to repent I just want to confess my sin to you and they begin to just break down You, you can't imagine the power that would begin to come to your life and to the church's life And then we testify and we pray. But you're forgiven now. And they begin to experience the incredible grace of God. What a powerful thing. The world doesn't know anything like that. Knows nothing about that. Well, finally, fourthly, and this is the fourth thing that's absolutely essential. If you really repent, if you really repent, there's going to be restitution. You know who the poster child is for restitution, by the way? Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Everybody read about him in your Bible stories and he sc- scatters up a tree because Jesus is coming. What happens when he sees Jesus? I mean, th- this guy's a dirty, thieving tax collector. He, he, he's the scum of the earth. And then he sees Jesus. And what happens? Listen to what happens. Now, this is repentance. This is Repentance. We read this in Luke chapter 19 and verse 8. If, this is Zacchaeus, if I have cheated people on their taxes, now watch this, I will give them back four times as much. That's restitution. You see, when you're really right with God, guess what? You're going to get right with people. If I'm really right with God, I'm going to be right with Susan, my wife. I'm going to be right with my children. I'm going to be right with you. And when I can make restitution, I am going to make restitution. But let me tell you something. If there is no restitution, then there is no repentance. And if there is no repentance, then that person is still in their sin. They are still in bondage. And their worship of God is a sham. hundred years ago, there was a famous preacher in England by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Skip, can you put up his picture? He was known as the Prince of Preachers, and he had great unction, great anointing. Thousands of people came to hear Spurgeon. And, but one time, the Spirit came upon Spurgeon so great, the Lord said to him, Spurgeon, I want you to preach on repentance, And so Spurgeon preached not on repentance one week, not on repentance two weeks, not on repentance three weeks, but he repeats, he started preaching on repentance a fourth week, and after the service, a dear woman comes up to Spurgeon and says, when are you gonna stop preaching on repentance? And Spurgeon had quick wit, and you know what he said? When you repent. And you know, I guess if I had enough guts, I might do that. Not because it's harsh, but because it's free. Satan lied and has said, oh, that's so negative. And we've got all these different people thinking it's not negative. It's the most positive thing you can have happen to you. Because God responds to repentance. You'll come alive again. You'll come alive. And so I pray as we sing this final song. And the Holy Spirit begins to work in you that real repentance Real repentance is going to come to us. And we're going to come alive like never before. Father, I I just thank you. I thank you for the Apostle Paul. Because we tend to idealize people. And the guy was a jerk. The guy was a maniac. He was bloodthirsty. He murdered people. And the amazing thing is, is your grace was greater than all of that. Your grace is greater than anything anybody's struggling with right now. All that you're waiting for is just real repentance. Oh, may that repentance come. I pray for freedom in the house this morning. Real freedom in the house this morning. And I ask for this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.